Well, hey, everyone, welcome to a brand new episode of Show Me the Crypto. On this week's episode, we chat with Kenny Lee, who is the co-founder of Manta Network. Alf, your thoughts on the conversation? I uh, had a lot of fun talking to Kenny. We covered his background, which he's got a super interesting background in cloud computing. He used to be a teacher's assistant for Gary Gensler at the SEC. So... The, that whole side of his story was interesting on its own. But then we moved into Manta Network and everything they're doing in regards to privacy and zero-knowledge technology. And then we moved on even further and got into more the history and future of crypto and where blockchain technology could be going. We touched a lot on modularity in the world of blockchain, interoperability, you know, a multi-chain future. What does all this look like? So we covered all kinds of ground and Kenny is super knowledgeable and had lots of thoughts and ideas on where the future could go. So he was a great guy to really dive into this subject matter with. Yeah, you're going to want to stick around through this full conversation, especially toward the end, because he jumps into, are we in a bull run even right now? And what are some of the future trends going to be? We touch on that later. As Alf mentioned, this fascinating history. He's been in the Bitcoin space since 2013, over a decade. He's seen a lot happen. And so he gives his thoughts on the evolution of the space, what's gone well, what we can improve on. We know you're going to love this episode. Show me the crypto. <laughs> Show me the crypto. Show me the crypto! In a world on the brink of disruption, two men will bring you clarity by interviewing some of the most intelligent and influential names in the blockchain world. Welcome to Show Me the Crypto with your hosts, Wade Patterson and Ulf Lonegren. Well, hi there, and welcome to Show Me the Crypto. My name is Wade Patterson. And I'm Alf Lonegren. We're a couple of friends from Canada who love learning about cryptocurrencies and blockchain technology, and we're happy you're along for the ride. Whether you're a crypto virgin or you know your way around the block, we hope our interviews with some of the most intelligent and influential people in the blockchain space help deliver you with value. And on this episode, we're joined by Kenny Lee, co-founder of Manta Network. Kenny is a serial entrepreneur who has started, advised, and invested in startups for more than a decade. While running a company in the cloud computing space in 2013, Kenny discovered Bitcoin mining as a way to offset server costs. In 2014, he held an advisory role for a Bitcoin options trading platform and went on to be a teaching assistant for blockchain courses at MIT. Manta Network is a multi-modular ecosystem for zero-knowledge applications. Kenny, welcome to Show Me the Crypto. Hi, thanks guys for having me here. Appreciate it. Um, you know, a lot of a lot of credit goes out to you guys for helping me sound great, but you know, hopefully, <laughs> hopefully, I'm able to live up to that. Yeah, pressure's <laughs> on, man. Pressure's on. That's a big bio. Yes. No, all kidding aside. <laughs> I, I want to talk about your entrepreneurial journey. So you're someone who has literally put blood, sweat, and tears into entrepreneurship. And I say that because I heard you tell a pretty extreme story on another podcast oh, about wow. the challenges of starting your first company. You donated blood for scientific research every six weeks in exchange for $50 per donation. So with that in mind, the question is, what is the best thing and the worst thing about being an entrepreneur? Um... Oh man, you ask an entrepreneur that question, you're going to get a different answer each time. I'd say that the best thing is um, 
the experience, not the experience. Well, I mean, the experience overall, but what I really like as, you know, a, a person is just being able to deliver good experiences to people, specifically like the team. And so being able to kind of grow together, build together, bond together. I think that's my favorite experience as like an entrepreneur, just kind of, you know, having people in your life, in your journeys. Yeah. So that's the best thing. What's the the worst thing? Um, the worst thing is when you come in unprepared, don't know how to make money, and then you end up giving blood. <laughs> <laughs> okay, can you uh, can you unpack that story a little bit for us? Like in terms of like, why did it get to that level of okay? This is the best way to make fifty dollars every six weeks. Yeah. So I mean, this is back in twenty eleven. I just graduated from undergrad, and so no idea what to really do with my life. And, you know, being an entrepreneur kind of came out of necessity because at the time I was just kind of in between trying to figure out my career path, trying to interview for jobs and everything. And so um, started working on cloud computing because at the, at the time the space was also extremely nascent. Um, it was very interesting back then because there's, you know, you think about cloud now and literally every project, every company uses cloud. There's nothing that doesn't use cloud anymore. And um, but back then it was completely different. And so it felt like a bubble as well. Um, but it was also a very new space. So there wasn't too much of a business model around it, right? Enterprise and companies really didn't start looking in it until like 2013, 2014. And before then it was just like kind of research experimental. And, uh, furthermore, I didn't know how to make money. I've never really done that before throughout like high school and stuff. I would just, um, be like a waiter. My weirdest job was being a scarecrow. Um, I was a, <laughs> that is so a weird job. I grew up in, <laughs> I grew up in Tennessee and, um, what I would do is during like October month, right? Like the corn would be harvested. And during that corn harvesting season, the, the farmers would create mazes like giant corn mazes. Uh, and around Halloween, they haunt those corn mazes, haunt them with like people like me. I just stand up there, <laughs> pretend to be a scarecrow, scare people. So I knew how to serve people as a waiter and I knew how to scare people as a scarecrow, but that's about it for my like business acumen. Um, and so when I started the company, I just had no idea how to actually make money, but I needed money. And so there were two things that I did. One was, you know, the, the blood, uh, stuff that you were talking about. And the other one was I was still working as a waiter. And what I would do just to kind of offset costs was I would essentially collect people because I worked at the sushi restaurant, right? And so it's kind of kind of sanitary, questionably sanitary in terms of like collecting people's uneaten sushi, like in a box. And then at night, after I get done with my shift, you know, there's my dinner right there. So I got paid. And you know, I got a free meal. So it's great. Um, yeah, so that's, that's kind of my, my sort of start on all this. And uh, started Bitcoin mining back in 2013 to also think of ways to cover costs. So basically my my whole adventure has just been thinking about ways to cut costs and cover costs. You're a resourceful man. You've got uh, <laughs> a lot of that uh, resourceful grittiness going back from those days. And actually on the subject yeah. of Bitcoin mining, I would like to know sort of, so it, was that your entry into crypto? And how did you go from that to founding Manta Network later on in life? What was sort of the journey and your experiences in crypto to get from A to B? Yeah. So um, the way that I actually learned about Bitcoin was very 
odd. Um, I was, this was in Boston and I was taking the subway into uh, work every single day. And on the subway, they give you these like really poor, like small newspapers just to entertain you enough so that you get to your destination. And so one, one day they gave me one of these and I was reading one of the articles back in, in like some section and it was talking about Bitcoin mining. It was talking about this guy who was experimenting with digital currency by doing this thing called mining Bitcoin and all this stuff. It was only like two or three paragraphs. And then I just started researching from there and I realized, oh, wait, you know, like all you need are lots of computers to do this. So like, that's exactly what we've got. So let's try it. Um, and so that kind of started the journey. And then, you know, like you guys said, in 2014, I started advising for uh, this company that was attempting to build a Bitcoin ETF, right? Options trading platform a little bit early for its time, considering it's still not available a decade <laughs> later. Um, but yeah, so like that, you know, had some conversations with like the CFTC, uh, learned a lot about like the compliance and regulatory process from that. Ultimately didn't launch because, you know, you guys know the reason. Uh, <laughs> and then um, in like 2016, 2016, 2017, I guess, um, people really started looking into crypto. Um, and when I say people, I mean like my family, my friends, right? Because then the whole ICO boom sort of happened and uh, everyone started asking like, oh, what is crypto? What is blockchain? What is all this? And so instead of answering them all the time, I just started writing about it. And so, you know, I would write about it and then if they ask, I would just link it to them or something. And then um, that kind of got me into, you know, researching the space a little bit more. Um, and then in 2018, I uh, went to go get my MBA and this was at MIT where I also did some work for the Digital Currency Initiative, which was the blockchain arm of MIT. And also I was the teaching assistant for Gary Gensler who's the chairman of the SEC. Um, and he, um, for, I, I specifically was his teaching assistant for his crypto courses. Um, and that's where I met uh, Victor, who's the other co-founder of Manta. And uh, we did some projects together over the summer and then eventually started Manta after we both graduated. So you mentioned Gary Gensler there, and I want to draw attention to your current pin tweet, which is the year oh. before <laughs> I was Gary Gensler's teaching assistant for crypto finance at blockchain lab at MIT. I was a student in his class. I wrote a report on BNB. That report, which Mr. Gensler gave to CZ to read, inspired me to get more involved with crypto. Can you unpack that a little bit? <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, sure. So, you know... I, I think that Gary Gensler is, um, you know, I, I kind of, how do I say this? There are people in your life that you meet that you say, oh, wow, I wish I could be more like this person. Gary is one of those people. Wow. Um, when I first met him and this was when I first started, you know, doing the whole MBA, um, he came off, he's such a approachable, personable, down-to-earth person. And you would never have guessed his background and all of his accolades and stuff based on just having a conversation with the guy. He just feels like, I don't know, what the, the George Bush saying of like someone you want to grab a beer with. Um, and so, you know, very chill person. And then um, I took one of his courses. And because he was so chill was so easy to get along with. I thought, okay, you know what? I'm just going to kind of, you know, pass this course and, um, you know, just like get some sort of grade, whatever. 
he returns my first paper and I've never seen any professor mark up a paper as much as he did. Like in terms of the, every single sentence had a suggestion on how to improve that sentence. And it was insane. Like I've never seen any professor take that much time to like be that attention to detail. And, um, that's when I realized like this guy's got a super serious side. Uh, and so it was such an interesting sort of juxtaposition between interacting with him on a daily basis and actually working with him or working on things for him. Right. And, and like, I think that's the kind of standard that is very respectable. Um, and at the same time, right. Like we, we've had a lot of conversation around just like blockchain crypto in general. And like, I, I, I actually learned a lot from him. Um, and in fact, like I'd say that most people who took his crypto courses would say the same thing. Uh, whether or not they were in the Web3 space before. Um, so I, I think like the general population, you know, looking at Gary and his policies tend to underestimate exactly how knowledgeable this guy is in blockchain. <laughs> is it tough for you to be authentic with that answer and whatnot, like given the kind of the greater public opinion, especially in the crypto space about Gary, like, is it difficult for you to, to kind of go out there and, and go to bat yeah. for him a little bit as somebody who's, you know, has a bit of a relationship? Um, I don't think so. I mean, like, you know, I'd go to bat for you guys. <laughs> uh, you know, good people are good people. I don't think they're, I don't think you have to hesitate to vouch for good people. Yeah. I guess on that note, like, good people are good people. What are your thoughts on maybe more the SEC's direction with crypto regulation versus what maybe you or the greater crypto community feel, you know, the direction it should be going? Yeah, I mean, that's a very tough question. Um, you know, me as just the a peasant in all of this has about as much knowledge and insight into this as you guys do probably. Uh, I do think like, you know, especially right now I'm in India, right? And um, before that, you know, traveling Asia, uh, Middle East, Europe, and just seeing all of these sort of crypto communities emerging in places that give these developers and projects the freedom to kind of flex that creative mind to really innovate. Um, and to be honest, like, I kind of wish I saw that more in the US. Um, I think that, you know, like people are extremely talented there. Um, it's just a little bit stifling in the sense that, um, you know, while you're working on all of this, there's always this lingering thought in the back of your mind about like, you know, whether or not you have to worry about, you know, the, the, the government coming after you at some point for something that you may have not intentionally done or is not entirely clear. Um, and so definitely, you know, like it, it's something that I, I do wish could be improved because there is a lot of talent, there is a lot of innovation. Um, and it just, it just takes the right sort of mindset to really grow that. Is that something that Manta Network uh, has had to have concerns about at some points along the way in the journey or perhaps in the future? Yeah, of course. I think that every um, blockchain project probably has to think about it. Um, or at least every blockchain project that comes on your show probably has to think about it. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it's, it's something that we, we have to also be conscious of, you know, for ourselves, for our team, uh, for the project longevity, right? Yeah. 
Well, let's uh, let's go back and uh, and sort of touch on more uh, little history again. And I'm just curious for someone who has been in the space for a while, like how have yeah. you seen the the crypto space evolve from 2013 until now? What's your take on just the evolution um, in any regard, really? Yeah, I I see so much waste. Um, so much effort and so much good intention that is implemented in the wrong way and it goes to waste. And what I mean by this is like, you know, back in like 2013, you didn't really have Ethereum. You didn't really have smart contracts, applications. What you had was Bitcoin and then Bitcoin forks, right? So, and then like maybe like SIA or something. But um, it's, it's essentially, why did people create these Bitcoin forks, the philosophy behind it, the intention behind it is uh, important, right? Because people saw this as an emerging technology and it could someday become, you know, global, which it has since that time. Uh, but the way that it operates is a bit inefficient. So how do we improve these inefficiencies? And so as a result, you see these forks of Bitcoin, right? You see like Digibyte, you see Litecoin, and then eventually you see Bitcoin Cash and you see all these other forks. Um, but then you fast forward like, you know, years later and all there is is Bitcoin. Um, and then you look at uh, Ethereum, right? Fast forwarding to 2017. And there's so much wasted effort around, or I wouldn't say wasted, but there's so much inefficient effort around creating Ethereum forks and Ethereum killers, right? I don't know, like the narrative in 2017 was what's the Ethereum killer? Right. And then EOS pops up and raises a billion dollars over a year long ICO. And NEO pops up and like Quantum pops up and represents all of Korea. And NEO represents all of China. NEO is supposed to be China's uh, Ethereum and Quantum supposed to be, I think, like Korea's Ethereum or something like that. Right. And like, you know, you have all these solutions and stuff. And but fast forward to 2021, 2022, all of those solutions are, you know, irrelevant. Um, everyone's using Ethereum. And now in 2022 and stuff, I do see this trend coming up again. Um, I think that the trend now is around L2s, right? I mean, you know, we're an L2, um, but I could probably name you 10 other L2s. <laughs> and so, you know, everyone's trying to be the L2. But the question is, you know, like who is still going to be relevant in five years, 10 years? And what's everyone else going to be doing? Um, and so that's more of like a philosophical question that I, uh, you know, we're tackling over at Manta. And it kind of influences a lot of the way that we build and the way that we innovate, um, iterate on things. Um, we are considering ourselves more on the infrastructure layer, but we try to ship more like on the application layer. Um, but yeah, so I mean, that's that's kind of, uh, you know, with, with all that being said, right, how do I see things changing and how do I see things improving? I do see like there's more and more exploration onto use cases. Um, but I I still don't think we found what we consider that killer use case. Kenny, one of the goals of our show is to create really unintimidating content for those who are even brand new to the crypto space. And so with that in mind, if somebody is tuned in, either listening to or watching this episode and has no idea what Manta Network is, how would you explain what is Manta Network? 
So Manta Network, we are um, one of the largest uh, OP stack based L2s. And uh, what does that really mean, right? So um, if you are in the blockchain space, then you probably come across very high gas fees when you're in transacting on Ethereum. Um, and so, you know, like ooh, the whole the whole point of Ethereum back in you know the early days was to quote unquote eliminate the middleman, right? Get rid of the the person in the middle that's taking very heavy fees and leaving very little for the actual worker or the creator or something. Um, and fast forward to you know 2022, we've eliminated the middleman in the sense of smart contracts can be deployed, but we've replaced that with gas fees, which are arguably just as expensive as the middleman. Um, and so, you know, now it's a problem of, okay, if, if we can't even sustain reasonable gas prices, when there's only this many people in web three, how are we really going to quote unquote onboard 1 billion users and still make web three sustainable? Right. And so purely transacting and interacting on Ethereum itself, is not enough to solve that scaling issue. And so as a result, right, we see this emerging trend of layer twos, which sit on top of Ethereum and essentially provide all the computation needed for applications. And so instead of applications deploying on Ethereum directly and transacting with Ethereum and having gas fees for every transaction, they transact now on the L2, the layer two. And that layer two takes all those transactions, puts them together, and shoves them down as one massive transaction into Ethereum, which ultimately is cheaper for everyone. Um, and so that's what we do. We do the shoving. <laughs> and what about, um, because it's my understanding there's Manta Atlantic and Manta Pacific, and what you were just describing is the Manta Pacific network. Is, am, I, am I describing that correct? And what are the differences between the two? Yeah, really good question. So I am describing Manta Pacific. Manta Pacific is fully online. We just launched mainnet approximately two months ago. Manta Atlantic is ready to go online. Manta Atlantic was or has been the layer one ecosystem that we've been working on for the past two and a half years. Um, I can go into more detail why it took two and a half years. But the point is that Manta Atlantic is um, uh, the, the, the ability of Manta Atlantic is essentially to provide private on-chain identity and compliant private transactions. And so uh, we use zero knowledge proofs to enable this and uh, happy to go into more detail about it. But the whole point is to be able to create decentralized privacy for users when they're trying to prove their identity without revealing wallet addresses, for example, or do some type of on-chain transactions such as payroll, which are very sensitive to, you know, the fully transparent uh, systems. Yeah, you just touched on on payroll there, but you know, privacy is something that we've been talking about more and more on the podcast. Can you maybe dive into that a little bit deeper of just why is privacy so important in the space? Um, yeah, I mean, privacy I think is extremely important because otherwise web3 becomes essentially a massive surveillance tool, right? And this is not surveillance just by, you know, unwanted government regulators and surveillance by business, surveillance by individuals, right? Like it's, you're essentially walking around naked on the internet now. Um, and so it, what's really, it, what compounds this problem is the fact that everything is immutable, right? You can't delete your blockchain transaction. It stays with you forever. And so 
you know, I'm sure that we've done things in our teenage years that we wish we'd never done, right? But that's great because then you can just delete it from your social media and then the world will never see it, hopefully. But it's not the same with blockchain, right? And so these things will uh, continue to, you know, live on with you. Um, but at the same time, right, like it also kind of creates your um, identity in a way that may or may not be truly representative of who you are. So surveillance, uh, misleading identities, right? And then finally, just pure like right of privacy, right? Like when you're doing some type of transaction, you may not necessarily want the whole world to see. That's why when you make a credit card transaction, it doesn't get broadcasted to everyone. And then everyone can see where you were at like 8 a.m. every single day buying a coffee. Right. There's a reason why you have to log in with your password to your, you know, bank account or your credit card company in order to see that information because that can that security vulnerability, that privacy vulnerability eventually can even lead to compromising like your physical safety. Um, so, you know, like there's there's a whole sort of plethora of reasons why privacy is important in general. Um, and it's just kind of alarming that it doesn't really exist today on the blockchain. <laughs> Totally. At least not in some sort of scalable manner. So I'd love to dive more into the technology side, but from the viewpoint of, you know, what started Manta in the first place, what was Manta Network's original goal? Because you guys have been at this for a little while now. You started, you're originally working on Manta Atlantic and now Manta Pacific came along and it seems like that's more at the forefront. So what was the original sort of vision for or mission for Manta? Uh, and can you also just explain in that regard how ZK Tech plays a role in this and what 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 is ZK Tech and, and, and how does that um, how does it exactly work? Because there may be people listening who aren't so familiar. Yeah, sure. So um Manta started off as thinking about on-chain privacy. So our mission has been on around centered around on-chain privacy and the driver of that is ZK. And so, you know, when it comes to the technology, we've always considered ourselves really like a ZK wheelhouse more than anything. Um, and as we continued to build Manta Atlantic, one of the things that we realized is, uh, or a couple of things that we realized, one is if you build something and no one uses it, then does it really matter, right? And so, um, you know, arguably a lot of, or not arguably, factually, a lot of the user base is on EVM. Um, so that's kind of one component of the issue. And the other one was the system that we built for the L1, it allows for activities such as the on-chain transacting and the uh, private identity verification, but it's not turned complete. There's no VM layer involved. And so, there was a limitation on like exactly what developers can do with like the, essentially the tools that we built out. And so Manta Pacific is kind of a solution to that, right? So Manta Pacific um, actually takes all the ZK circuits that we built for Manta Atlantic and puts it on the application layer so that now developers can actually use our circuits as well. So it's almost like offering ZK as a service to the developers so that they can just plug and play rather than having to build everything from scratch. Um, I think, you know, if you look out into the world of ZK use cases beyond rollups, 
you can kind of condense it into like maybe five or six different categories. And so right now, everyone's kind of building the same sort of ZK circuits for their own application, but they're doing the same things. And so why make everyone reinvent the wheel when you can offer this more as a service to the entire developer ecosystem? Um, and so those, those are really the two reasons why like we went the Manta Pacific route as well. Um, and then the question about, you know, what is ZK? A zero knowledge proof is literally just proving something without any knowledge of it. Uh, I know people tend to uh, exaggerate the complexity of this, which it, you know, in all rights deserves that complexity. Um, but at the same time, just a high level understanding of it is very simple. Uh, it's zero knowledge proof is not like JavaScript in the sense that it's a programming language. It's a concept. And around that concept, you can build it however you want. And there's different implementations and you can build it in Rust. You can build it however you want. Um, but the idea here is essentially I prove something without revealing that information to you. Uh, and so the example I really like to give, which is a fairly common example, is uh, a game of guessing the color of the ball in my hand. So I have two balls in my hand. Let's pretend. And then you guys uh, are you guys. I need to you guys need to prove to me that you're not colorblind. Right. And so what I do is I have a red ball, a blue ball. I put it behind my back. I shuffle it. I bring it out. And then I ask you to point the red ball. You point to the red ball and I'm like, okay, that could have just been a lucky guess. Right. Because there's a 50 50 chance. But I do it again. And then you point at it again. I'm like, okay, let's do it again. And now let's do it a thousand times. Right. By the thousandth time, you've probably proven to me statistically that it's not just lucky guesses a thousand times in a row and that you're actually not colorblind. But at the same time, I never you know, looked inside your eyeballs for the cells that prove that you can see colors or anything. And so you didn't have to actually give me that proof. You just proved it to me. Um, and so that, that's kind of like an example of like a very simple zero-knowledge proof. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, thanks for explaining that. And in regards to, I guess sort of these differences between Manta, Atlantic, and Pacific. Where does this, you know, are both necessary? Is there a point in the future where these kind of merge into one network? Um, you know, Wade and I, we recently had, um, we haven't covered Polkadot a lot on this uh, on this channel, but we recently got to speak to a guest and, and sort of dive into the world of Polkadot a little bit and just, wrapping your head around it if you're not as familiar if you're more into the ethereum ecosystem you know it's a little different in how things work in Polkadot, but they very much um have this multi-chain mission and interoperability um that they're building towards and so you know is that something where the case is true for manta as well that whether we're talking about manta atlantic or pacific these things at some point will sort of in, be interoperable and work together? Yeah, the first step is definitely interoperability. And then the question of, you know, the coexistence, right, really depends on, you know, where we start seeing the adoption. Um, if it is very much one-sided, then could possibility could possibly be like a merge, um, you know, definitely open to the idea, especially as we continue to kind of deploy the ZK circuits onto Pacific to allow developers to kind of get creative with it. Um, so yeah, I mean, you know, any scenario is possible. Right now, what we're focused on is just getting Atlantic shipped as well, and then seeing where to kind of go from there. 
and more on the sort of tech side for Matt Pacific, because this is all fairly recent. And in doing the research, I didn't even know of, uh, you know, a couple of these things that existed. For example, the poly on CDK, uh, which I understand you guys utilize to sort of create Matt Pacific. And in addition to that, using the data availability layer of Celestia and just diving down that rabbit hole and even learning about sort of modular blockchains and how they differ from, say, a monolithic blockchain, which is what is much more commonly known. You know, there's a lot to unpack there. So maybe you can touch on the different sort of technology stacks that Manta Pacific's working with and, uh, you know, why you chose to use those, what are the benefits, and maybe we can touch on modularity and uh, the blockchain world as well. As well. Sure, yeah. I mean, um, <clears throat> I don't think that modularity is like clearly defined, at least in the context of crypto, right? Like, and so you're probably not going to find an Oxford dictionary definition of it here. Um, but essentially, right, like I, I, I answered a previous question about, you know, like where, how have I seen blockchains change? And um, I was talking about like the, the how things become obsolete generation after generation. And so I also mentioned it's kind of like one of the philosophies we take very seriously at Manta to kind of like break this curse. Um, and so as part of that, we have a very modular approach in how we build out our infrastructure. <clears throat> and I, I do hope that in the future, other blockchains, at least on the infrastructure level, kind of think about this approach as well, because um, this is why we use Celestia. This is why we're able to use Polygon. This is So we're currently, uh, our L2 is currently an OP stack-based L2, and we're transitioning over to ZK EVM with Polygon CDK. And then we're also integrating Celestia DA. It's going to be, actually, yeah, we've already integrated Celestia DA. Sorry. I mean, we've already integrated by the time this is published. <laughs> so, <laughs> Perfect. Uh, hey, alpha alert. Nice. Alpha Thinking alert. ahead, yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, we've already integrated Celestia DA. And so we're, we're, our whole philosophy is not to build everything from scratch because we've got such an abundance of talent and specialization in the space that we would rather be able to leverage all the specialities that other people cover, other projects cover, and be able to bring that into Manta in order to provide that amazing user experience. Because, you know, people say user experience, usually when people say that, they think on the application level. They think, okay, less buttons to click, more bright lights here, and all this other stuff. But on the infrastructure level, I think the infrastructure offering also has a responsibility on the UX side, namely, on the gas fees, if there's anything you can do to reduce gas fees without compromising on, you know, the security to a certain extent, then that's something I think is worth considering because that's something that ultimately benefits the user. And so by bringing on Celestia for that modular data availability, we're able to cut our gas fees by around like 100x because, and I'll, I can get into details of how that works, but essentially, right, like we're, we're plugging in Celestia into our ecosystem and the benefits are then sent over to the end user because their gas fees are now significantly less. Um, <clears throat> same with Polygon. So we want to transition over to ZKEVM. Why do we want to do that? On the technical side, 
it's better security from our perspective because it's cryptographic security versus economic security. But what does that mean for the user? Because the user on a daily basis is not going to think about these security issues, right? They're going to think more about like, okay, when I withdraw my assets from the L2, how long is it going to take to get to my wallet? And when you're doing an optimistic rollup, you have to have that period, that challenge period, whether you're doing fault proofs or fraud proofs. And that's, you know, anywhere from three days to seven days, depending on which sort of optimistic rollup you're on. Um, whereas with uh, a ZK EVM, that proof is generated with every single batch of transactions. And so there's no wait time. As soon as the next block is produced after your assets are withdrawn, hopefully if you pay enough gas, then you're able to uh, move your assets off of that chain, right? And so that's a much more fluid user experience from an L2 side. And so these are just two examples of taking more of a modular approach to kind of taking the best technologies from wherever they are and just combining them to make a better user experience. And I think we're going to see more and more of that uh, in the upcoming year or so. And, you know, like, I, I, I feel like Nance is definitely going to be taking advantage of as much as we can. I was watching a video sort of like explaining uh, how Celestia can help solve the blockchain trilemma thanks to the modularity and that it's sort of, you know, the trilemma is something that under the monolithic structure can't really be solved. It will always exist, but through modularity, perhaps it can be. Um, what are, what's your take on that? And um, your, you know, do you feel that uh, modular blockchains are the future and that everything will inevitably go that way? Or uh, how do you see it working in terms of, you know, L1s, L2s and L3s in the future and how they all end up working together? <clears throat> yeah, so I do think it'll and I hope it will inevitably go that way because you see this in every other industry, right? Like in cloud computing, which is where I spent almost a decade of my life. Um, like you, every cloud server is quote unquote modular. <clears throat> you design it from the ground up, but you don't have to build it all yourself. You say what operating system you want. You say what CPUs you want. You say how much RAM you need, how much disk, how much storage, et cetera, et cetera. And bam, all of a sudden, this is like a customized, ready, available uh, server for your specific situation, your specific applications. Um, and so that's just like industry standard, right? Like when you and, and I guess it happens less now, but like back in the old days of like hard forks and soft forks of Bitcoin and Ethereum and stuff, it's like. You want to change something and all of a sudden you have to take a snapshot of this thing and migrate it over. There could be some downtime and all this other stuff. And it's just like, okay, if you look at a business, right? Like if I'm selling, I don't know, vitamins um, to customers and then I want to change my CRM, the customer relationship management software, do I have to take my whole business down for 24 hours? Do I have to snapshot my business and then migrate it over to another building or something, right? No, you just change the software, right? Like you go from Microsoft CRM to HubSpot or whatever you choose. And, you know, it's business as usual. Um, I think that's one of the main advantages of a modular approach because you have this flexibility in being able to plug and play and allow your uptime to just still be there. Um, the way that Celestia specifically works in terms of modularity is it removes the call data from um, each Ethereum transaction. And so what does that mean? Um, essentially, every time you, you, you create data on Ethereum or you create a transaction on Ethereum, there's this um, area called call data. And the call data is essentially storage. 
you have to store information on Ethereum that can then be picked up and used by other applications in the future. But Ethereum wasn't built to be a storage center, right? It's not the same as Dropbox or Google Drive, right? Um, it's it's more of a, a compute system. And so like you can run computation on it and actually computation is a little bit expensive as well. But, you know, some of these smart contract calls uh, are not too complicated. But when it comes to call data, every time you post it, every time you write it to Ethereum, Ethereum's like, okay, um, I'll take this for you and I'll allow other people to read it and stuff, but it's going to be super expensive. Uh, I think the estimates right now are around like 80% of gas costs is on the call data. And so you can imagine, right? Like if, if you were somehow to able, able to kind of take that call data out of the equation, then it's a lot cheaper. And so that's exactly what Celestia does. Celestia says, okay, instead of taking that call data and putting it on Ethereum, just put it on us. And then we'll tell Ethereum everything that's happening, right? And so Ethereum doesn't have to have call data anymore. It's all on us. And so bam, right? 80% of gas costs gone. Um, so that's how they kind of approach modularity. Hopefully that makes sense. Yeah, that's super cool. Going back to Alf's question earlier in the interview, talking about the evolution of crypto and your take over the years. And you said, you know, there's this issue that, you know, whether it's the Bitcoin forks, whether it's the Ethereum killer, that there's been this yeah. distractedness and, and maybe hasn't allowed us to be as productive as possible. And you see that trend coming now again. What do you, is that just something that you think is inevitable in this space over the years? Or do you think it's a a growing pain situation where we'll get past that? Like, what's the solution? You know, at the sake of sounding like a salesman uh, or a shiller, I think the solution is modularity. Because, you know, that's our whole entire approach to being adaptive and relevant five, 10 years from now, 20 years from now. Because if you're able to take something outdated, get it out of the way and move it into a more like, frictionless system based on the technologies of that time, then I do think that kind of breaks the curse there. Um, it, because when you're working on things like, like Bitcoin, okay, all right, this is more of like a community concern because, you know, I, I don't want to tell Bitcoin maximalists exactly how to run their chain. But um, <laughs> in theory, right, like if everyone agreed, Bitcoin, well, I guess Bitcoin could just hard fork into like an, an eight megabyte block size or something, but um, it shouldn't have to take so much effort and downtime and risk in order to make these types of changes, right? And so what ends up happening is, okay, now I want a better version of Bitcoin that has a bigger block size. All right, I'm going to fork it. Now I want a version of Bitcoin that has like, you know, smaller uh, block generation time. Okay, so I fork it. And now all of a sudden you have like 10, 20 different forks. But each of those 10, 20 different forks themselves are monolithic, meaning that they can't really change afterwards unless they're forked again. And so that's just so inefficient. And so these, these projects, they, they come into the space, they have this amazing vision of scaling Bitcoin and on-chain transactions, but then they fall short because they can't adapt to the changing needs of the environment, right? Now everyone wants VMs. Everyone wants Turing completeness. They want smart contracts. They want applications. Okay, what is you were just able to plug that into your L1 and just kind of go at it from there, right? Like, I do think there's a future where that would be entirely possible and very simple. Um, and I think the sooner we kind of head in that direction of being able to be that adaptable, the faster we can kind of break this trend. And since we're talking about the future and where things could go, you know, uh, 
this talk around modularity, I mean, it makes a lot of sense, at least theoretically. Like as we talk about, it's like, yeah, that just makes sense. So why wouldn't it go that way? But what about on the interoperability side or the uh, the multi-chain sort of side of things? You know, you were talking about earlier how, um, you know, everybody uses Ethereum and sort of these other Ethereum killers have come and gone. But there are still other layer ones. There are still other chains. And yes, they, you know, haven't been able to maybe gain in market share over the years, but they still exist and they're still building and they still have active developer communities. At some point, will we get to a stage where it doesn't matter anymore that they're less active or they have less of a user base on these other networks because we get to a point where networks are interoperable and completely different L1s can work together and the things that somebody built on, you know, XYZ chain works now for ABC chain through whether it's modularity or through other systems that have been created to, you know, allow these things to cross over. What's your thoughts on on how that plays out in the future? Yeah. Um, so great question. I have a conspiracy theory. Um, my conspiracy theory is that blockchain will become eventually the global computer. That's not what it is right now. Blockchain is many different fragments of, you know, global attempts at computerization. Um, but eventually it will become the global computer. And what does that mean? In that world, I think infrastructure will reach its fate as a commodity. That's what infrastructure tends towards, right? Like you look at anything in Web 2.0 infrastructure, whether it comes to data centers, whether it comes to copper wires, whether it comes to uh, carbon fiber, whether it comes to, you know, uh, internet services, they're essentially commodities now, right? And like, I'm not choosing a particular internet provider because they have some spectacular service that's so much better than others. It's likely I'm choosing them because they're cheaper or because they basically own the area. All right. Like it's kind of weird how that works, <laughs> but um, like that that's a commodity. Like I don't, I'm not talking to you guys and thinking about, oh, I don't want to connect to AWS. I want to connect to Microsoft Azure. Like, let me, let me try to find a VPN route <laughs> that lets me go through that. Right. Like no one gives a fuck. Yeah. Right? Like just connect and have fun. Right. Like actually enjoy the applications. And I think like in five to 10 years, right. Like uh, I hope maybe it's a little aggressive that all of this infrastructure idea, um, while still important and while the innovation is still critical, it should not be a concern for the end user. Like people shouldn't have to care. Oh, I'm on Manta Network. People shouldn't have to care. Oh, I'm on, you know, uh, Linea or Scroll or Mantle or whatever it is. Um, people should only care that their application is up and running and they can get what they want from the application. And so what does that mean for the L1s, the L2s, the L3s of the world? Maybe the L3s of the world can then become the applications themselves. But what I think that means is that there needs to be more seamless interoperability. I think the state of interoperability today is not sustainable because it's a great first iteration, but it still makes you have to care about the infrastructure. Like I still have to consciously think, oh, I'm going to move my assets from this chain to that chain. And I have to worry about it arriving or not. And no matter how many times you do it, it's still nerve wracking. 
Um, I do think that there will be a world where you no longer have to care about bridging actively, consciously. And that's also where true scalability comes in. Why? Because I hate to keep going back to cloud computing, but that's kind of the only other world I know. <laughs> so, that, that and scarecrows. Uh, yeah, that's true. Yeah, but I don't know how how relevant my scarecrow knowledge is in this example. So <laughs> uh, for for cloud, right? Like for for traditional internet, if you build an application, you don't scale out by buying one server and trying to beef it up with like you know sixty four cores and one hundred eighty gigabytes of RAM and like you know, one terabyte of storage and all that stuff, because inevitably that one server, that one computer is gonna break down. It's not gonna work for you. It's not scalable for you if you hit the number of users you wanna hit, right? Duolingo, 10 million daily active users per day. They don't do it on one server, right? They do it across many different servers, across many different geographies. I think the same thing should happen with blockchain. It shouldn't just be one L2. It should be able to spin up L2s as you need as a service, right? And be able to use that to scale out your application layer. And so you've got this application, okay, one L2 is no longer enough, spin up another L2, share the states. These are all things that are very theoretical right now because, you know, there's, if shared state was really a thing, then we probably wouldn't be talking about this. It'd be a reality. But in the future where shared states really can work out, right? Then spin up another L2, to increase the TPS, spin up a, a 500th L2 to increase TPS for that application as needed. And then you can spin it down as you don't. Um, I think that that is sort of where the global computing power really comes into play when it comes to L2s. And then the L1s are purely just for settlement. Um, L3s themselves, maybe they are the cloud server. I'm not really entirely sure here. But I do think it's a world where like the L2s really have to work with each other. And who knows, maybe it's not a bunch of L2s. Maybe it's just one L2 and everyone spins up that copy because that's the best L2 for them. Or maybe it's different flavors, just like some people use Ubuntu and some people use Fedora and some people use Windows and some people use Mac. Um, but I, I do think like, you know, in the future, these types of things will definitely be commodities. Otherwise, like there's no, there's no mass adoption. <laughs> So Kenny, we're getting close to the end of the conversation. And in a second, we're going to ask you three questions that we ask every single guest of Show Me the Crypto. So we'll get there in a sec. But before we do, I'm curious. I mean, right now, at time of recording, we've seen a bit of a run-up in crypto prices. Bitcoin just crossing the $44,000 threshold. And a lot of people are questioning, is this... Like, are we in a bull market right now? What's that look like? So this is a two-part question. Question one is exactly that. Do you feel like we are in a bull market as of right now? The part two to that is, regardless of that's now, if that's in the future, what do you think will be a dominant trend of the next bull run to keep an eye out for? Yeah, good questions. Uh, first question is, I feel like people feel like we're in a bull market. <laughs> you know, whether I'm convinced of that or not, I mean, you know, it's it's irrelevant. My opinion is, worthless here. I'm not a, <laughs> not a financial person. So, you know, but um, yeah, the trends is very interesting because um, every sort of market, every sort of these runs has its own sort of dominant trend, right? Um, I do think what is one thing that I'm pretty interested in is the real world assets. Um, I do think that they are making a more material emergence in this time around, right? Like one of the uh, projects that we work with 
very closely is called Mountain Protocol. Uh, I don't know if you guys have heard of Mountain, but they are the first, they're the first regulated um, stablecoin that Mm -hmm. actually provides native yield. And so the way that they do this is they use, um, they actually use treasury bills, US treasury bills. And so the yield is around four to 5%. And so just by using USDM, why you have a stable coin and you earn yield on it and you can transact with it just like us without staking or anything. Um, and like, you know, like what does that imply for everything else, right? As soon as one product comes out that's like this, then every product really needs to have something like this, right? Or else eventually it's, it's competitive disadvantage to not do it. Um, and so I think that's a very cool example of real world assets. And I think like, you know, markets, and bringing real world assets on chain, I think, creates new markets and creates more, um, I guess, price discovery for a lot of things that otherwise, you know, you may not have thought you could even purchase, right? I'm in India right now. Who knows? Maybe in two years, I could purchase shares of a home or maybe purchase a home and keep it all on chain and then sell it to someone else who lives in Cambodia or something, right? And so like, now all of a sudden, you're, you're taking these sort of traditional resources and giving them out to a global market, what does that really imply? And I think like that's a very sort of powerful trend um, that can really catalyze a lot of the experimentation for the next market. It's a good answer. We've asked that question to a few guests recently and and that's that's a unique take. So really like that. Well, as What's as everyone a, else saying? Well, well, a lot of people, I don't know, there's been a wide range of answers. Some people were saying uh, gambling, gambling they're like looking at all the low cap tokens and it's a lot of these gambling tokens that are gonna uh i think gambling's been a use case in crypto for the past 10 years oh i know (laughs) yeah just being in crypto feels like it what what are some of the other things that have been said i'm trying to recall i don't know but um no it's interesting on that uh real world use case um like we've had uh, i mean we've had guests on from all kinds of different sort of niches in the space but that what came to mind when you mentioned that was uh real estate and we've talked about like shared, um, like sort of crowdfunded, you know, real estate investing type of things. And I don't know, that seems like the similar type of um, maybe use case to like real world, like you're talking about that just wasn't really possible before, not in any efficient way. And uh, those are some of the doors yeah. that I think like real world crypto, you know, experiments open up. We had... Um- I can't remember his name. I want to say Devin Bernard. That might be incorrect. But anyways, he was one of the first people to purchase a property <clears throat> a property as an NFT as well. And so it's like, yeah, you're starting to see this, this come into play. But yeah, there's been some, some different takes on the trends. A lot of people talking about, obviously, L2 is going to be big. DeFi is going to be another strong trend. But it's like you said, it's tough to know because who would have guessed... AI, and, we've heard. Yeah, AI right? has been a big one. Yeah. NFTs in 2021, I mean, just were this crazy story. And I don't think that was a lot on a lot of people's bingo cards in, in 2020 in terms of like <laughs> the fact that that would be as big of a, a theme as it was. So it'll be interesting. But as I mentioned, Kenny, we like to end every episode of Show Me the Crypto with the same three questions we ask every single guest. It's a segment we call You Had Me at Crypto. Ulf is going to ask you those questions. All right. You ready? Let's do it. <laughs> okay. The first question Who's your favorite person to follow in the crypto space? Oh my God, these are so hard. Who's my favorite person to 
follow in the crypto space? Um, you know, there's this guy, um, his name is Chain or he goes by Chain Yoda. Um, and he doesn't really have a huge following. Uh, you know, he's not like one of those huge crypto influencers, but I think he's very real. And his realness, it comes in the form of sarcasm that I really appreciate. And <laughs> nice. it's just like, you know, like why beat around the bush? You know, like, I think, yeah, that's nice. Yeah. I love that. Yoda. <laughs> I love that. Same question. What will the price of Bitcoin be 10 years from now? Going a decade out. What will the price of Bitcoin be 10 years from now? I think the price of Bitcoin, two scenarios. One, it's probably a million plus. Um, two is, um, who even knows? Maybe we're going to be measuring the price of dollar in Bitcoin. Nice. I love it. We haven't had that one in a <laughs> while, but we have had that before. <laughs> All nice. right. Third and final question. What is the most underrated project in the crypto space? Um, I know a lot of under the radar projects. Um, and, but I do think like, you know, I, I mentioned mountain protocol. They are very cool in terms of like kind of finding this intersection between on chain, um, need right? Everyone needs stable coins uh, and regulatory and compliance and also being able to do it in a better way than exists before, right? Because the US dollar doesn't give you yield. The existing stable coins don't give you yields. And this one just like naturally gives you yield. I, like, I, I really like projects that like push the boundaries of, you know, what traditional ways of doing things are. Um, and there's a few other that come to mind, right? Like there's this index fund that's emerging right now that also kind of pushes the boundary with some arbitrage to make it a very active, like almost like an index fund on steroids. Um, been talking with that team a lot. It's pretty cool. I, I don't know if I can get into much detail in here, but, uh, yeah, I, I, I just think like there's, there's a lot of things in this world that can be improved to bring them into the, you know, 2024. Uh, many things in this world still operate in 1995. And so, um, yeah. Kenny, this has been a great conversation. Love your perspective on a lot of these things that, you know, even in researching <laughs> for this, this podcast, Alf and I, you know, it challenged our thinking. Sometimes we get just in the same silo on this, this podcast, but really fun thinking about some of the possibilities of the future. Thank you so much for joining Alf and I on this episode of Show Me the Crypto. Thank you guys for having me. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Show Me the Crypto. Please make sure to subscribe as well as rate and review this podcast.